Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. The tone of this show, I don't know. You told me a couple innings ago that it was going to be a, a happy and positive one. I would not have believed you, given how things have gone for the Toronto Blue Jays against the Baltimore Orioles this year. Kind of felt like they would not pull that game out. They go ahead early. They're up 3 nothing. Uh, you say Kiku or sorry, up three one rather. Uh you say Kikuchi gets tagged with two. Uh a little bit of an iffy pull decision for Kikuchi there. And Jimmy Garcia allows one of the inherited runners to score, but otherwise uh gets out of there damage free. And then the Jays and Orioles have a, a bullpen off from there. And if you missed yesterday's show or you missed Jay's Twitter, including our first guest, Chris Black, and myself talking about this uh on Twitter yesterday, the primary difference between the Blue Jays and the Orioles this year and between the Blue Jays and the Mariners over the last 30 days or so as the Mariners have made a run in the the wildcard race. Uh, A lot of surface level stats the same or would even lean toward the Toronto Blue Jays, but execution in big situations, whether that's runners in scoring position, whether you want to use Fangraph's high leverage uh, moniker, whether you want to use a clutch metric that exists out there. However you chop that up, the Orioles have been... Among the very best in baseball, the Toronto Blue Jays have been very iffy on the hitter side, pretty good on the pitcher side in those big spots. And given how this season has gone between the Jays and the Orioles, you you would have been forgiven for being negative about that. How it plays out, though, Trevor Richards, clean 11-pitch sixth. Jordan Hicks, nine-pitch seventh. Eric Swanson, not quite as pitch efficient because he's needs the pitches to strike out the side and induce five swing and miss in just a single inning. Tim Mesa actually gets the nod for the ninth, uh, dances around some trouble. Orion McKenna uh, seeing eye single, a tremendous play by Bo Bichette on an Adley Rutschman ground ball deep into the hole at shortstop. Uh, they intentionally walk Ryan Mountcastle for all our sanity, and then Gunnar Henderson grounds out. Tim Mesa gets out of it. And then at the top of the 10th, first pitch, boom, Brandon Belt. Jumps all over a fastball for a two-run home run. The Jays would add an insurance run as well, and then Jordan Romano does a clean bottom of the 10th. Jays win 6-3 in extras. Very unfamiliar given how Jays-Orioles has gone this year and you know a couple of the, the last seasons as well. You can certainly go back to 2016 and find a, a time and a particular game and a particular extra inning game where uh, things really went the Blue Jays' way. Uh, but in recent vintage, the Orioles would have pulled the game out a game like this out. So that's a positive. Jason proved to 70 and 56 elsewhere around baseball, though Houston defeats Boston, Seattle defeats the white Sox. So no ground gained in the wild card race there. Uh, notable too, though, that Texas lost their sixth in a row. So we very well could soon be talking about the Jays battling Texas for a wild card spot. The Houston Astros and Seattle Mariners, both within a game of Texas in the AL West for now, all the blue Jays can do is keep their eyes on their own page focus on trying to sweep the Orioles so that the American league East is still somewhat of a reasonable target down the stretch here, and then turn the page into the easiest five series stretch of schedule they'll face this year. And that's where you really make up your ground in that wild card race. There are some positive indicators looming. We talked about some of that clutch and and situational hitting stuff that tends to normalize over the course of the season. So we bring in now the normalizer himself, Chris black producer at Sportsnet at down to black on Twitter for all your Twitter stat and video breakdown threads. Chris live from Baltimore. How are you? I'm doing really well. That was a, uh, that was a fun, fun experience. Um, 
as you know, I, I do just the, uh, you know, the secondary batch of games uh, behind our lead producer, Doug Walton. And so I, I haven't done a playoff game or anything like that, but that last night felt like a playoff game. And it was a cool experience in the truck. The, the guys in the broadcast booth, Arden, everyone was locked in. Um, so it was a, it was a fun game to be a part of and in one small way. You could kind of tell everyone would be locked in. Ar- Arden and Ben Nicholson-Smith zipping it around on Blue Jays Central <laughs> pregame too. Everyone except for me with my voice going here for a second day in a row. Um, so it did feel playoff-ish, and I want to get to some of the hitter side things, but I think whenever we talk about playoff baseball, Chris, and this goes back to you know 2015 losing to the Royals, 2016 how the Orioles used their bullpen, just what we've seen the trend in Major League Baseball be over the years in playoff situations, so much of that discussion comes down to the bullpen. Uh, we can quibble, and we will in a second, with the Jimmy Garcia, Yusei Kikuchi decision, but from there... Jays go six, seven, eight, nine, ten without allowing an earned run. The only walk is intentional. Um, man, I, I know you've been pretty optimistic about this bullpen throughout, and now you have Jordan Hicks in there. You have Trevor Richards back, not used yesterday, but Yenesis Cabrera uh, added to the mix there. How confident does a game like that make you feel about the prospect of shortening games and executing in playoff style games down the stretch here? Yeah, it was. It really seemed like everything coming out of each reliever's hand was filthy last night. And that was, I think that speaks to a day off the day before. I think that speaks to well-rested and well-managed bullpen in Cincinnati. And I think it speaks to the adrenaline of last night, but those guys came in and yeah, Garcia gives up a hit, but still overall eight strikeouts for the entire group, 14 swing and miss. Um, They were dominant. Some of the swings too. Like if you look at some of the filthy swings, that Richards elicited some of the filthy swings that Swanson elicited. Like they were nasty, nasty, nasty. It was really, really cool to see. You're right. I was bullish um, on them kind of from the get go this year. I I was really confident in Richards, um, the changes that they were doing early on with him. And yeah, I, I really like it. I, I knew their weaknesses last year, but I still liked um, the back end of the pen, for example, like I've always been a big, Romano guy, and I will remind people every time last year comes up, even though we don't like to mention it all that much, that, you know, he struck out two guys and then got a pop-up in last year's postseason. So we can quibble about the bullpen, but um, I thought he did the job last year. And last night, they all did the job. It was dominant, and it was very, very cool to see. Certainly, and you compare this year's bullpen to last. Well, you've added Eric Swanson, who had tremendous numbers last year in Seattle, but wasn't really trusted in leverage. We've now seen it in leverage over some good sample here. You add Jordan Hicks, who is going to be a roller coaster, yes, but uh, you see on days like today or Saturday against Cincinnati, when the stuff is on, he's borderline unhittable. Um, you know, this is obviously an improved version of Tim Meza, and you know, a dramatically improved version of Trevor Richards, who at some points last year looked like he could be the odd man out of the bullpen or a non-tender candidate in the summer if they needed a 40-man spot and now is kind of this hyper-valuable swing role guy. Um, So pretty good there. To nitpick, though, part of why the bullpen... I mean, most of why the bullpen is rested is because they had three off days over an eight-day stretch. But part of that has also been the starters have given them some length. That lets you play guys in their optimal matchup. That keeps everyone's kind of fatigue units down, especially when you look at guys like Swanson, Meza, Garcia, who are among the league leaders in appearances. Uh, Given all of that, 
and yes, acknowledging that you had a pretty well-rested bullpen there. Uh, what did you make of the decision to yank Yusei Kikuchi where they did and go to Jimmy Garcia? Um, you know, per, I'll answer first so that your answer doesn't inform. I, I, I was not a fan, but <laughs> I, I generally, I think my most like, counter analytics take the thing that's going to get my analytics club card pulled the most is I think we have way too short of leashes with starters in general. Uh, and I would have liked to see Kikuchi who hadn't given up a hard hit ball in a couple innings, uh, get out of that one himself. Maybe. Yeah. I think we can certainly, if the argument was Kikuchi's pitching over the last month has earned him maybe giving that, getting that chance. I totally, I would say, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but the reasoning for them making the move also completely makes sense to me. You had Westberg and McCann, two righties coming up. They had each singled, I think, just one inning before. Um, and it just seemed like when you saw what they did, like it seemed like the game plan before the game was we are, you know, we're bringing everyone to the, you know, we're going to fire everyone we got today and we're going to use every bullet. So, you know, it felt like last night was an empty the holster early, use all your bullets. Don't, don't move too late instead of too early. And so I, I do think Coochie's performance has earned him the right of, you know, getting of people saying, Hey, he should have stayed in. And I think that's fine. But I also think the logic of making the move also made sense in that moment. And given the stakes and given that you kind of need a sweep, as you mentioned, to kind of keep the East in play that to me, making those moves and kind of, um, even still, there was even a couple examples where somebody had a quick inning mm -hmm. and yeah, in my head, Hicks, I'm going like Hicks and Richards, yeah, Richards both had really quick ones. Yeah. And like you could have in your head, you're like, oh, well, maybe he could go out for another inning, but they had a let's, let's fire everyone, but, and let's win this game. And I, to me, that logic also makes sense. Yeah. And look, this is a stretch of nine consecutive game days, but nine is not 17. You've got game that you're coming in well rested. You've got the option option with Bowden Francis. If at some point you need a fresh arm and things like that, uh, you can certainly manage. I, I would yeah, I, I would just like to see Yusei Kikuchi get the chance to get out of a spot like that, given, I mean, how how quick the leash was with him prior and how infrequently he's actually been in those situations uh, the last couple months to even get himself out of. So the other element of the the Jays executing this from the bullpen side, and Tim Meza certainly wasn't bad, uh, seeing eye single from, from Ryan McKenna that just kind of snuck through, and then you intentionally walk Mountcastle because that's the right move there. He gets out of that even though there are pretty cleanly, even though there are runners on base. But my goodness, did Bo Bichette do him and the Jays the favor of all favors. That play where Adley Rutschman hits it deep into the hole at shortstop. Bo is going back kind of stumbling and almost no, it's like a quarterback getting sacked and flinging the ball uh, at the last second to not take a sack. And Bo hits Vlad right in the chest with a throw. I, I don't imagine you've gone through the video of every Bo Bichette play we've ever seen, but that's got to rank up there among the best Bo Bichette defensive plays. Yeah, especially if you consider the stakes. I, th I think if you consider the stakes, it probably is his best play. He will do that from time from time to time, and we don't need to get into a big discussion about his defense. It's become it's become more than sufficient, especially for the bat. So just cool to see it in the moment to see that big play, and you know it does remind um, it reminds you always need a slow runner to help a play like <laughs> that happen. And Adley Rutschman helped them out. I also loved the pitch. Mesa through 
in the next at bat. I think was it Henderson that would have been up? Yeah, yeah after, after they intentionally base. walked Mountcastle. Yeah, yeah, that's a nasty, nasty pitch that he used a sinker running back in, just sawed him off, got in his uh, kitchen, and it was just that's a great pitch too. So just a lot of moments of really good execution on all sides yesterday. Yeah, certainly, and that. I mean, Mays is gone. It's funny. He's a lefty who's a sinker slider guy. And you'd think that would introduce big, big platoon splits. And against fellow lefties, it'd be the slider that he hammers. But he actually uses that sinker pretty heavily, even more heavily against lefties because of that late run. It does get on it. And and that one was like, yeah, busted in at the hands of Henderson and, and he rolled over top of it. Uh, so good stuff there. Good stuff from Bo. If anyone is curious, because I did get a couple tweets about this uh, last night uh, from people wondering if the metrics still dislike Bo or, or reputationally, uh, he is practically dead average across the board. Defensive run saved has him as basically league average. Fan graphs has him as basically league average. Baseball prospectus has him as basically league average. Uh, stat casts outs above average is the only metric that doesn't really like him that much, but everything else is just like, yep, he's, he's pretty much average. And if you are one of the best hitting shortstops in baseball, uh, you can live with average. Okay. So on the hitting side, Chris, there were some positives yesterday when it comes to Dalton Varsho, who hit a two run home run early in that game and picked up another hit later. Uh, there have been a lot of positives over the last three weeks or so. You and I talked a couple weeks ago. You had put up a Twitter, a quick Twitter thread that you'd noticed a bit of a change in Dalton Varsho's stance. He was going to more of a toe tap instead of a leg kick. I asked him about it last week when I was down at the park and he said, yeah, I, I've done it. It's more of a mental thing than, than a mechanical thing. But I think that in addition to the good results, something that we're seeing, and I know you guys did a little reel of this on the broadcast last night. So forgive me for asking you to repeat, but for this audience, uh, it certainly seems like that change has allowed Dalton Varsho to be more selective at the plate, particularly with stuff in in the zone. Have, have, do, do the numbers bear that out? Do what you've seen on the video bear out that, that this change has also, whether it's helped or, or just come in concert with Varsho is, has improved his plate discipline and which pitches he is and isn't swinging at. Yeah. Uh, I mean, pretty simply last three weeks, three plus weeks, uh, his chase rates gone down by like five or 6%. And in the world of when we're just talking right now, five or 6% sounds small. But in the world of baseball, where you see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pitches, uh, that's a huge, huge drop. And to, for it to happen that kind of suddenly, and when it's tied in concert with a mechanical change, um, that's huge. Um, and, you know, it's a lot. I think a lot of different people have, have spoken to him about it. Arden has, I think. I think Joe Flea did a week or two ago. And I think Shulman was planning to at some point. And yeah, like, whether it actually helps him change his swing or whatever, or might just make him feel more comfortable. And that's what my eyes see when, when you watch him at the plate. And this is something I've said many a time with many hitters, when the takes look more comfortable, that's usually a sign that the hitting is going to come and the takes look comfortable for Varsho right now. Um, he's just had a lot of good at bats. There was a nine pitch walk against Hunter green, um, I think he had, oh, there was another long at-bat that finished without a base hit or a walk uh, recently as well. Like the, He's he's grinding deep into at-bats where it felt like when he wasn't right, there was a lot of, 
O2s, 1-2s, and the at-bat's over. You're not seeing that right now. You're seeing patience. You're seeing a level of comfort at the plate. And then the results come. There was also like um, one of the cool things that happens when you're working at the park or when you're in the TV truck is there's just a live feed of batting practice. And, you know, this, you can't always trust batting practice stuff. But when I was watching him last night, he was just barreling everything. And it's not like they were going second deck or anything, but the barrel of the bat was hitting the ball every single time. And that might sound silly and it might, you might just think, Oh, everyone's barreling stuff all the time, but that doesn't always happen. Sometimes they're missing. Sometimes something feels off and he just, he really feels locked in right now. And he was down for a while. So to see him contributing, like seeing it now. And when you kind of take a big picture from 20,000 feet and you're seeing that, you know, his, he's providing more value than Guriel. Now he's providing more value than Teoscar, like that stuff, all those trades look a lot better now than they did a month or two ago. That's that's certainly the case, and we'll obviously continue to track that. There's also the financial component, where in those trades, the Blue Jays freed up a little more money that went to take your pick, Kevin Kiermaier or Brandon Belt, if we assume that they're working with a finite budget here. So uh, a couple stats from just what you were saying about Varsho, that you mentioned the chase rate dropping. Uh, for anyone who you know has trouble contextualizing that, Varsho went from chasing 29.7% of pitches. So swinging at a pitch that was outside of the zone about 30% of the time, that's now under 25% over the last 21 games. That's the difference between being a 30th percentile chase guy and a 70th percentile chase guy. So you go from being bottom third of the league uh, to top third of the league in terms of what you are and aren't swinging at. And of course, it's not just about that you're not swinging at the bad pitches. That also means the pitches you are swinging at are more hittable pitches for you. The result there, Chris mentioned the barrels in batting practice. His barrel rate has gone up from 6.8% of his batted balls to 9.4% of his batted balls during this stretch. And then obviously the results are the results. The OPS uh, up from 625 to 960 over that stretch. Now, Chris, when you look at, you know, let's, Let's play the super optimist role here. And we're not going to play that for long because we're going to turn to a couple guys who've been struggling in a minute here. <laughs> but if things are rolling for this lineup, um, do you like Dalton Varsho in that 5-6 range in the lineup? Ideally, is he hitting a little bit lower than that for you? Um, where does the best version of Varsho slot in for you? Um, I think you and I are usually on the same page with this stuff where like specific spots, I'm not really... I don't get too worked up over. I think it's important who you have in your top three. Uh, after that, I don't break really... up the lefties and just keep it rolling. Yeah. It, yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, I think he slots in that five, six, probably six somewhere in that neighborhood. It's great seeing Springer having better at bats. Belt's been amazing up there. So I like the guys that they have up top. And I think like this is a good, it's a spot that fits for Varsho. He can do what he does, contribute when he can. Um, keep doing what he's doing on the base pass on the field in the field. And yeah, like I, I like that spot, but like generally, and I think you'd agree, like, it's just, I don't concern myself too much on the specifics towards the back end of the order. No, it's split up the lefties and give yourself some, I mean, the, the big thing is make a decision difficult for the opposing manager. And that's basically, that's right. yeah, split up your lefties. And, and maybe if you can, don't put your high swing and miss guys in consecutive spots because you know, that can lead to a real frustrating inning and uh, limit your ability of, of your faster guys to move on the base pass. So Dalton Varsho up in the lineup, the byproduct of that, 
Matt Chapman has slid to seventh the last couple games. I know that Matt Chapman has been dealing with this right middle finger inflammation. He missed a couple games, but we're looking at two and a half weeks now since Matt Chapman last had an extra base hit. It's a span of 42 plate appearances. Uh, he's got a, a 350 OPS in that stretch. Are you seeing anything underneath the hood with Chapman over these last couple weeks? Or is this, you know, maybe finger and just, hey, the way it goes uh, kind of ups and downs? Yeah, like it's it's hard to see nothing explicit. And whenever there's like, whenever there's something where there's a potential injury involved, it makes it almost not impossible, but really hard to draw big conclusions from. But, you know, we just talked about Varsho and when, how he's seeing it better. And, you know, Right now, Chapman doesn't look comfortable at the plate. And whatever those reasons might be, who knows why. But also, you know, when you're dealing with someone with a track record like this, when you take a step back and look at his numbers and look at his production, you know, he's got a slightly higher average, slightly higher on base, and a slightly lower slugging than his kind of career norms. The defense is as good of as good as ever. Like he's gonna wind up as like pretty much what he's been the last couple of years, like a, a four-win player or so, which is what he was in 21, what he was in 22. And it's slightly less valuable than what he was when he was like a borderline MVP candidate in 18 and 19. But he's a he's a good player, right? Like we we know that. There's swing and miss. Um, he really doesn't want to chase. He's He is one of their most disciplined players. But I think when he's really thinking about not chasing breakers and he's seeing more spin than ever, um, I think it makes him a little susceptible to swing and miss on velocity. Um, and I think we're seeing that a little bit. Um, but yeah, like he he kind of, this, this is what he is, like not in the micro, like where he's struggling right now, but the season production. And, you know, April was awesome. <laughs> like April, <laughs> April was an unreal version of Matt Chapman. And if that would have continued, they would have had an MVP candidate. Um, non-Otani version, but um, so yeah, like it's struggling, tough to see exactly what's going on, but still, you know, like I said, you'll take a, a four-win season for sure from anyone. Matt Chapman's April so good, in fact, that I just mentioned he hasn't hit an extra base hit in over two weeks now, and he still leads the American League in doubles with 35. <laughs> uh, he's about 100 behind Freddie Freeman for the overall Major League Baseball lead, and, and yeah, like you said there, you know, he has he has an unconventional chase versus whiff profile where he's a top 10 percentile at not swinging outside of the zone. And then uh, down near the bottom of the league in overall swing and miss Brandon belt, another guy like that who doesn't swing at anything outside the zone, but sometimes you can challenge him and he'll swing and miss uh, good results for Brandon belt on that lately. Uh, the other hitter we of course have to talk about because our pal Mike Petriello wrote about him and came on the show to discuss uh, not to belabor the Mike Petriello's 11 theories piece, but it was very good. And Vlad had a three hit game yesterday where once again, he had like three of the four hardest hit balls in a baseball game, even though one of those was kind of a sneak through the infield single and another one resulted in a double play. Um, when you read Mike's piece, and I know your instinct is probably to like take a jab at Mike or something here, but um, of the 11 theories that Mike went through there, is there anything that stands out to you as something you're going to be watching and focusing on these next couple games to see, you know, hey, if Vlad has another two-hit game, another three-hit game, that the underlying stuff is moving in the right direction and not just the results? Um, the short answer is no. And okay. but But here's why. Like, Here's what I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to jab Mike. Like, here's what I love about Petriello's work. And it's kind of how I try to approach 
when I look at this analytic stuff or any dive into a process or anything, like I try to avoid the abstract stats like WRC plus or WOBA, like at least when you're presenting stuff to the public. And by that, I mean like putting stuff on the shows that I work on or on social media. Like I want to, I look at stuff that people can see with their own eyes and have it make sense. Exit velocity. What pitches are they having success against? Like that stuff is, uh, intrinsically understandable, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, um, so, and I, I thought that's what made Mike's piece so good is he broke down each and every situation and each and every plausible theory. And just with, with really understandable reasons and data. And so for that reason, I think it was really, really good. Um, but also he broke it down perfectly in a way that it's, he explained that it's almost inexplicable <laughs> what's, what's happening. Um, I don't know if I have no clue what Vladdy's going to do between now and the end of the season and no clue what he's going to do in the postseason if they make it there. And that's just because he's so talented that even when things seem off, even when mechanics seem off, even when some swing decisions seem off, we saw in the first inning, not a great swing decision on a pitch on the edge uh, with a runner in the scoring position, I think first and second, but still three hits. Um, Here's the only thing I'll say. I think this season is so strange with Vladdy. And I think for a few different reasons, he's going to have a monster 2024. Like I want to get in early on that. And I think there's, I just think there've been a lot of reasons why this season hasn't gone the way he or the team hoped, but I just feel like maybe not to 2021 level, but I feel like there's a monster 2024 coming. Well, there were, there could be a couple of reasons for that, right? It's, you know, the, the health aspect, the regression aspect, the, this frustrating season motivates your grind and gets you in the lab even more aspect. There's also the aspect that, you know, he'll be what 25 next year, which is right around when guys hit their, hit their hitting peak. So uh, yeah, I, I would, I would take that bet for sure and hope we get a little glimpse of it. Maybe not Jose Batista, September, 2009, down the stretch here, but hey, I'd settle for Bo Bichette 2022 close to the season, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Like we will, I, <laughs> I want to see some Max Scherzer, some bombs off Max Scherzer that go 450 feet into the Dunedin sky. Like it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, we know what he can be when he's absolutely right. And even when he's not, he's still pretty good. And that's, you know, that's kind of the cool thing of watching him in the, over the last couple of years. And also it's the reason why people get frustrated with him at times. It's it, I've been on with you for two years now. And the, the line I almost always use is we all grade him on a curve and he's kind of earned that kind of responsibility <laughs> with the level of his play. But yeah, to still see him get three hits, uh, very encouraging. Yeah, if you didn't want to be graded on a curve, you shouldn't have come second in MVP voting two years ago. <laughs> That's on you, Vlad. Exactly. That is on you. Okay, looking ahead to tonight, it'll be Kevin Gosman against Jack Flaherty as the Jays look to uh, secure a series win here and keep the sweep alive. Some interesting stuff going on with Kevin Gosman over his last couple starts. Three starts ago, he faced this Baltimore team. And this is an Orioles team that over the season and even a little bit last year kind of lays off Gosman's fastball and tries to swing at the splitter swing. That last meeting, it was the second highest swing rate against his splitter of any opponent this year in a game. And what we saw last time out against the Phillies was 
Kevin Gosman will tell you that, you know, he didn't love the strike zone, but also the splitter didn't have as much vertical break as we normally expect. And he didn't locate it as well to the bottom part of the zone. He was catching too much of uh, the bottom actually in the strike zone versus those bottom falls out of the splitter splitters. And the result of that was the Phillies really teed off on the splitter for a little bit there. So, Chris, you look at his last three games. We know this is an Orioles team that has historically actually looked to hit the splitter rather than lay off the splitter. And we're coming off a start where most of the numbers would say it's the worst Kevin Gosman splitters been as a Blue Jay. Uh, what are you anticipating tonight? Does Baltimore, like, I, I guess Kevin Gosman just coming out with a ridiculous splitter is the easy answer here. But what are you looking for in this matchup uh, and kind of the cat and mouse between maybe Gosman doesn't have the best splitter feel right now. And this is an Orioles team that's looking for that. Yeah, there was a pivotal at bat against the Phillies against Castellanos. And I think he threw back to back sliders to Castellanos and one of them, he drove for a double or something like that, a big hit. Um, and that was surprising. Castellanos certainly has some chase issues, especially against breaking balls. So that might've made sense, but also I think it might've highlighted that. Yeah. Gossman didn't have a great feel for the splitter for whatever reason. Um, I do think it is an interesting cat and mouse game as, as you said, the Orioles, as some good hittings or as lots of good hitting teams do, I should say, like they hunt off speed stuff. Like we saw, we talked about this with Bo Bichette against Hunter Green the other day. Like, yeah, like sometimes if you pitcher might hang a splitter, like leave a splitter up in the zone or throw a lazy slider in the zone, that's easier if you're looking for it than hitting 99. Um, Gossman won't hit 99 on the gun, but, you know, to me, I think it's the fastball. If we saw some really ugly things against fastballs for the Orioles last night against Gossman-type pitchers, and in that I mean Richards and Swanson, um, if they're sitting and trying to protect against splitters, his fastball, if he can get it up and get it, you know, get it going and get it up into the, the 96s, the 97s, like I think that can be and should be an important pitch for him today. On the other side, uh, the Jays saw Jack Flaherty in his first start coming out of the trade deadline. Maybe he was just like really fired up for his debut with a new team. He kind of hit the Blue Jays with more fastball velocity than we're used to seeing from him. He's had a couple of, well, one iffy outing and then one straight up bad outing with Baltimore since that meeting. Uh, what do you, what should the Jays be looking for from Flaherty tonight? And was the velo we saw last time out, um, not a mirage because he can get it up that high, but maybe not what we expect to see from Flaherty on mass today. Yeah, like he, I remember when he was with Cardinals earlier this season, he kind of got into a back and forth with some reporters um, about, you know, velocity doesn't matter. It's when his velocity was down, especially quite a bit to start the year. And he's like, velo doesn't matter. Like I can pitch, I know how to pitch, you know, but the number, I, this is when I like numbers, when they refute what people are trying to tell you. And especially if they're trying to do it in a really condescending way. Um, Velo matters for, for lots of people, most pitchers. And this Jack Flair is one of the people where it matters a lot, where if he's up above 95, which he doesn't get up a ton anymore, the stuff is really, really good. And that day against the Jays, he had, he had really good stuff. Um, the stuff hasn't been as good since. Um, it hasn't been that good most of the season. But yeah, he threw 12 fastballs at 95 plus against the Jays. That's his second highest total of the season. And the 
one of only two times that he's been in double digits. So, yeah, if the stuff is good, it's going to be a tough matchup. Um, we saw Rodriguez have really nasty stuff yesterday. They did a nice job against him. They did a nice job against Hunter Green, who didn't have his best stuff, but still brings that elite velo. Like, it'll be tough. He's, he throws a lot of different things. He'll mix in curveballs, sliders, cutters. He can throw a bunch of different types of spin. But, yeah, to me, it's if the velo's down, He's a much more manageable pitcher to kind of work some hits against. Um, yeah, and we'll uh, we'll see. Uh, there was some speculation uh, going around that maybe Baltimore changes some things up and it'll actually not be Jack Flaherty on the mound tonight. We obviously have to prepare for Jack Flaherty because he's listed as the probable, but there were some rumblings after the game last night that maybe there's a different... Uh, something something's going to get tweaked there. So uh, we'll have to keep an eye out for that as well. Maybe Chris, you, you're going to have to spend your n- afternoon preparing for, I don't know, Dean Kramer or Tyler Wells or something like that. But uh, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how the Jays handle Flaherty, a second look at him over the course of just two weeks here. Obviously, um, you know, Flaherty is not a guy with the stuff at a level where, you tip your hand to him when he's good, but this is a guy that the Blue Jays should be able to hit because a lot of teams have hit him uh, this year and they've hit better pitching than this. Chris Black, uh, enjoy Baltimore. I hope, is it nice out there? It's Yesterday was gorgeous okay. and not humid, which I've like never experienced in Baltimore. This morning, the humidity has returned. Um, okay. You just mentioned uh, potential. I'm hearing rumblings that that might happen as well. Okay. So as we were talking about Jack Flaherty, I'm hearing rumblings that, yeah, starting pitcher might change tonight. Yeah. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that. I ask about the weather only because A, it's miserable here and B, the weather forecast in Baltimore looks pretty rough for tomorrow. So uh, yeah, better get this one in today before uh, the weather maybe turns there. Chris Black, hope you get a, a couple hours of sunshine in as well, buddy. Thanks a lot, buddy. Chris Black at down to black on Twitter, producer at Sportsnet. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll uh, we'll take some text line questions. You can send those into 590-590. There are some truly bad ones in there today already. So, uh, oh, apparently it's official now that Dean Kramer is going to throw today. Well, that was a quick, uh, <laughs> that was a quick from a rumbling uh, to a official. Um, yeah, Dean Kramer is going to get the nod today instead of Jack Flaherty. So uh, we will tee you up for Dean Kramer in the next segment. As well, uh, you've seen him about 450 times over the last two years, so you probably don't need to be super teed up for Dean Kramer. But yeah, Orioles juggling the rotation a little bit. Uh, We'll see if we get an explanation for that as Blue Jays Talk Plus continues on Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Not a lot of Baltimore bands to pick from choosing the songs this week sr 71 will have to do never a bad time to remember that sr 71 uh exists thank you to a couple listeners who uh tweeted in about the starting pitching change i do not check twitter very much during the show uh so it's just that break so thank you to uh trizzy maddie and robin who tried to alert us uh, before I was actually alerted to it officially uh, about the pitching change for tonight jack flaherty scratched dean kramer on the hill instead. So we'll continue to set that one up uh, throughout 
the show a bit of a different picture in terms of stuff with Dean Kramer. You're looking at, I mean, first of all, he doesn't walk that many guys, but also he's got that big spinning curveball. Kevin in Toronto asks in the text line, you can keep your text coming to 590, 590, by the way. Uh, Kevin in Toronto asks if Biggio plays tonight with Kramer's terrible numbers versus lefties. Uh, Dean Kramer has pretty significant platoon splits uh, this year. I think it was probably a Kevin Biggio night, Kevin Biggio night, regardless. Uh, Jack Flaherty also has pretty big platoon splits. Biggio has just been hot enough anyway that you probably want to don't want him to uh, sit too long. But yeah, uh, Dean Kramer strikes out far fewer lefties than he does righties. He walks about double the amount of lefties as he does righties. All the numbers, uh, almost double, well, not double, but uh, a 393 FIP, FIP, which takes uh, walks, strikeouts, and home runs into account. Uh, 393 against righties, 618 against lefties. So uh, pretty significant platoon splits there for Kramer. I'd imagine we see Biggio in there. Maybe it's a four lefty day. I don't know how uh, quite how they'll they'll juggle that. But yeah, you want some lefties in there. And hey, a uh, bunch of your lefties are some of your hottest hitters right now. Um, obviously, Dalton Varsho has turned things on. Brandon Belt has 100 home runs lately. Uh, Kevin Biggio has been one of your steadiest guys for a couple weeks now. Uh, and even Kevin Kiermaier, I mean, he continues to obviously provide the defensive value. Uh, there was a question from Jake and Sault Ste. Marie about moving Kevin Kiermaier up into the order to try to get him hitting more with runners on base. I think the problem with that, as good as Kevin Kiermaier has been this year, uh, if you cut his season kind of halfway, uh, he has a OBP under 300 over the last 45 games or so. I know I know he's dealt with some injuries. Some of those are, are pinch hit and defensive replacement situations, but we're still talking about uh, 131 plate appearances there where uh, he's been a sub 300 OBP. And that was true for all of last year. He's only about a 310 on base guy for his career. Um, that's not to disparage Kevin Kiermaier, who has been tremendous for the Blue Jays. I just think that that profile type works a little better at the bottom of the lineup as sort of a table setter as the lineup turns back over. I think that's a pretty good spot for Kevin Kiermaier. Plus he had his goal before the season, as he told Ben Wagner uh, that he wants to lead the league in hits out of the nine spot. So uh, you wouldn't want to take that away from him either. Last I checked, he was way ahead of everyone else in terms of uh, hits from the nine spot. He's got 66 of his 77 hits while hitting ninth this year, um, which is pretty fun. That's a, that's a nice little side thing to track. Uh, the blue Jays have gotten as much as it hasn't always felt that way at times, they've gotten more production out of the seven, eight, nine spots than just about anyone. That was true last year as well. Uh, some good depth here. I'm going to be less nice about these next two text line questions. The first is from the same person. I think that texted in very mad about Vladimir Guerrero jr. Last week. And we don't talk about how Vladimir Guerrero jr. Struggling and uh, et cetera. It's the, the media's fault, et cetera, et cetera, uh, for not calling it out. This person is now mad that Chris Black thinks Vlad will have a big 2024. He also says that the quote, even when he's not great, he's still pretty good is a flat out lie. It's not. You said, and this person says he is brutal most of this year here. This is a tough part about evaluating Vlad because you are evaluating him based on your expectation for Vladimir Guerrero Jr., which is fine. You're allowed to do that. Um, that is what comes with being a star player with making, you know, good money already as a super two guy with having come second in MVP voting just two years ago, the bar is supposed to be high, but to argue with Chris, when he says that, yeah, the, uh, a disappointing version of Vlad this year still has a 782 OPS. Uh, well, that's the number. 
That's like that's not an opinion. He has been 15 to 20 percent better than a league average hitter still. Now, that's not the best thing in the world for a first baseman who's not adding a ton of value with his legs or with his gloves this year and certainly not compared to where the bar is for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. But you can't just keep texting in saying that it's not true or it's a lie because it's the number. It's what he's done at the plate. It's how he's performed. Uh, I'm sorry. But if you want to measure him against your own expectation for Vlad, you're absolutely allowed to do that. OPS plus or WRC plus or DRC plus, whatever stat you want to use, batting average, OBP, those are not scaled relative to your expectations for Vlad. So when Chris says that he's still been pretty good relative to all of baseball, that is the truth. So uh, I'm sorry. And yeah, you, I think you just need to frame your reframe your thinking or, or, you know, listen a little closer that we are evaluating Vlad versus Vlad and Vlad versus Vlad expectations. But also the reason he's not hitting seventh or getting benched is because he still has like a 780 OPS. Um, Ruben in Alberta also asks, funny how all of you last season want to get rid of Bo or move him to second and have a hard time complimenting his very good play at shortstop this season. This text came as Chris and I were drooling over Bo Bichette's play last night. You were literally listening to us talk excitedly about how great that Bo Bichette play was. And texted in, funny how you can't talk about how he's good at shortstop. I, I don't understand what you're listening to uh, sometimes. Anyway, statistically, Bo has graded out his average this year at shortstop, which is a big improvement from where he was. That is more than enough with his bat and the fact that it's trending in the right direction and he's still young, that you are comfortable with him at shortstop. Uh, we've said it a bunch this season. I am not sure what you're listening to, Ruben in Alberta, but thank you for the text. Uh, someone texted in. They appreciate the SR71 background tune. No problem. I will try to, uh, well, it's not very SR71-ish the rest of the show, but we'll we'll see if they pop the audience uh, as well as we continue. Uh, Clifton in Etobicoke. What's up, Clifton? Uh, says, given how easy it seems to prepare for Gosman, should he be a slam dunk game one starter in a wild card series? I don't know that I agree it's easy to prepare for Gosman, we've seen teams like the Twins stick to a game plan of laying off the splitter. We've seen teams like the Phillies jump on the splitter on a day that the splitter wasn't very effective. He wasn't, it wasn't snapping off. It wasn't moving. It wasn't locating well. That was more about execution than game plan. We'll see with this Baltimore team tonight. Um, look, the, the real answer here is if Kevin Gosman were that easy to game plan against, he would not be in the Cy Young discussion for a second consecutive year, really a third consecutive year. Um, you don't post ERAs in the low threes three seasons in a row or, or 281 as it was in 2021. He has a 312 ERA over the last three seasons. Um, you don't do that over 500 innings if you are easy to game plan for. You can pick one or the other. Like a game plan wise, hey, jump on the splitter or lay off the splitter entirely. Execution wise, part of what makes Kevin Gosman so tough is that it's really hard to pick up which of those is which uh, in the moment. Now, as for if he's a slam dunk game one wildcard starter, I think you have to look at the matchups. You look at who's pitched particularly well uh, the couple of weeks leading into the playoffs. Um, there's also a scenario where you don't get to choose who's up for you in game one of a wild card because the wild card race is so close that you have to pitch 
whoever is the best option just to make the playoffs. This is also why, you know, there's a real importance on these next five series to make ground in the wild card race so that that last week of the season, you can set up your rotation the way you want. Um, but yeah, it's something to, to keep an eye on Clifton and, and certainly tonight's start, given what the Orioles did to him last time and that the splitter wasn't very effective last time out. Um, yeah, it's it's something to keep an eye on here. Uh, Andrew in London asks if it's time to put Springer back in a leadoff spot. Seem to miss the power potential there and might provide a spark. Um, it, I think that question also is informed by a little bit that, you know, Witt has continued to hit for a good average, but the power has uh, dropped off that, that little power surge that he had for a bit there. Um, has cooled off a little bit. Um, Witt not exactly in a, a slump here, but three for his last 24 at the plate. So that probably plays a factor as well. Um, I, I wouldn't argue with Springer bouncing back up. I wouldn't argue with them mixing it up. Um, I, we know that Springer has been very comfortable there for a long time. So uh, they are maybe going to explore going back to that, especially as Springer gets hot and Whit Merrifield cools off a little bit. Um, the, the counter to that is that while well, Springer's, found it right now and maybe you don't want to mess with that I, i'd be fine with it either way uh someone in the 705 area code says why would anyone want to be drafted by the jays hit a game-winning home run reward is to sit for a week free david schneider uh you'd want to get drafted by the jays because there are only 30 teams in baseball and if you will take any uh any spot in professional baseball that you can they've also you know there are success stories as well um the situation with Davis Schneider is tough playing time wise. This is part of why we kind of thought maybe he'd be the one going down rather than Paul DeYoung because Davis Schneider can then get everyday plate appearances at Buffalo, continue to develop, continue to stay hot and be ready for a September call up. Uh, Paul DeYoung instead, by the way, signed with the San Francisco giants yesterday and is expected to debut for them tonight or at least join their roster tonight uh but yeah it sucks that david schneider isn't getting regular playing time right now uh now that chapman and springer and kiermeyer and bichette are all back uh there's going to be a bit of a playing time crunch for guys like schneider and espinal um even biggio who is uh has been pretty good for for a good stretch here and can't find uh spots in the lineup every day Ed in Scarborough now wants to counter this other guy who was texting and said he's tired of the Vladdy slander on every show. Um, okay, well, I think you and this other guy just need to get together and argue with each other. If someone in the text line is mad that we are slandering Vlad and someone in the text line is mad that we're doing Vladdy PR, I think we've probably struck an okay middle ground here. Ed and Scarborough, appreciate the text, but you and that other guy uh, can, <laughs> can go at it there. Um, Keith in pick two says, I know there are two groups that have totally different opinions on Vladdy. Why not take a look at his figures from all-star break to today? Um, how many RBI does he have in that period? And what is his batting average versus fastballs in the same time frame? Um, I don't, I don't have it handy. What his batting average versus fastballs is in that time, but we know that, um, you know, fastballs have been a part of this. We talked about it with Mike Petriello uh, the other day that Vlad has gone from being a fastball crusher to just okay against fastballs. Um, I mentioned kind of coming out of that interview with Mike Petriello that that is something that I'm focused on as Vlad continues here, especially the ability to punish inside fastballs to the pull side. As for his stats since the All-Star break, uh, I've been referencing those pretty regularly. Um, the, the tough part is that he had a very good burst 
out of the all-star break. And then around the time of the Dodgers series, uh, things kind of went awry there. He had that obviously very good series uh, in Seattle where the Jays only managed to take one of three, uh, had a couple home runs coming out of the break as well. So, I mean, the all-star breaks as arbitrary uh, a cutoff point as any, you could pick, Hey, since the Dodgers series, you could pick 20 games, 50 games, round number, whatever. Um, we, we tend to chop this up into uh, segments where, we note an actual change early in the year. For example, we were like, okay, well, after he came back from missing a day or two with that knee injury, what had it numbers been like from that? Um, the all-star break provides a break for sure. I don't have a good explanation for why he was really hot for a week coming out of the all-star break. And then the cool off happened. Um, but yeah, you have to look at all sorts of samples of stuff. Um, Ryan and Stony Creek, Liked the decision to lift Kikuchi where he was. Um, it looks worse with Garcia getting hit pretty hard, but the Orioles were starting to pick up on pitches at that stage. Uh, supportive of leaving him in longer in the past, but thought last night was the right trigger. I mean, it's a reasonable argument, Ryan, and that's probably what they were looking at. I would say in terms of identifying pitches, he hadn't allowed a hard hit ball in a couple of innings. So they, you know, he was kind of getting nickel and dimed a little bit. I just, I, I know it's a big series and I know it's a big game, I'm going to lean toward trusting your guy who's been really good lately and let him try to get out of it um, just a little bit, a little bit more, especially this time of year. But like, like we said with, uh, with Chris and, and like your comment says, there is room for disagreement there for sure. Uh, Mark from Thorold says, are we going to assume Chapman won't be back next year? Uh, so Barger or Martinez will play third or, and possibly second. Uh, also Cody Bellinger. Okay. We'll do the Cody Bellinger stuff. Uh, another time we'll do off season targets in the off season, but yeah, I think it's fairly likely that Matt Chapman gets a big money deal that when the Jays look at their payroll structure and the fact that a number of their top and highest level prospects are third base prospects that, uh, yeah, I think they'd probably prefer to resolve that one internally, whether it's Barger, Martinez, Schneider, some combination of them uh, wouldn't, I mean, I'm not putting the chances at zero of Matt Chapman being back, but I think he's going to get paid and he's a 30 year old third baseman. And you have a handful of third base prospects that you need to see what they've got at some point. If Matt Chapman is back, well, then those guys become uh, pretty interesting trade chips in the off season. Uh, Akash in Mississauga asks, this is the last one before we take a break here, uh, but you can keep them coming to 590, 590. Uh, Akash asks, what happens when Adam Simber comes back? Is he a DFA candidate? Honestly, man, I don't think he's coming back. He's uh, He's been on the 60-day IL for a while. We've had no update in terms of him starting to pitch or going on a rehab assignment or anything like that. We're now only like five or six weeks out from the playoffs. So even if he started a rehab assignment um, in just a couple days here, the Jays could be creative enough with it to not have to make that decision. Um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because he's a guy they really like and has given them some really good innings uh, in 2021 and 2022. But we haven't heard an update on him since like uh, mid July last we heard he wasn't even uh, throwing yet. So I think that's probably something we, we don't need to worry about uh, just yet. There are a couple more questions in the text. I will sprinkle them out throughout the second hour here. We're going to take a break, though. Madison Shipman of Sports out of Blue Jay Central of ESPN will join us next. Ben Clemens from Fangraphs coming on around 1130. All that's next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL, the J.D. Bunkers Podcast. 
Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Air Force One's an aspirational song for people like me and our next guest of Sportsnet, of Blue Jay Central, of ESPN. It's Madison Shipman. Madison, good morning. How are you? I am doing good. How are you doing? I am well. Uh, so you were a shortstop. That play Bo Bichette made last night in the ninth inning, going deep into the hole and hitting Vlad right in the chest with that throw. Degree of difficulty on that one, 10 out of 10? Yeah, it's definitely way up there. Uh, what impressed me the most about that play is not him just him popping up and making real balance because uh, you have to have such good body awareness from where you are on the field because you have absolutely no time to stand up and try to see where first base is. So it's all about knowing the angles in which you need to throw the ball over there. I thought it was a – I love the reaction of him on that. He knew how crucial it was for Bo to be able to – we're Madison. I think we're going to try to reconnect with you where we're losing you a little bit. So we'll try to reconnect. I'll talk to you in just a minute. We'll reconnect with uh, Madison in just a moment here. Curious as to her take on uh, Bobachette's defense overall as well. I, I know Madison and I talked when she was first joining us on Blue Jay Central, um, you know, her imp- initial impressions of, of Bo from afar and, and reputationally, and now she's been, you know, locked in for a couple of months here. I uh, wonder how her opinion of Bichette's defense has changed. As we talked about with Chris, as we talked about in the text line, uh, the metrics that we have and certainly the eye test suggests that he has taken a step forward uh, this year. Uh, while we wait for Madison, we'll, we'll continue to monitor the text line. Uh, Paul in Winnipeg asks uh, if we look at Gosman. Actually, we'll double back to that one. But, Paul, your question about Gosman's second half fatigue is, reason, is a reasonable one. We'll double back to that. Uh, we have Madison back on the line. Madison, hello. <laughs> hello again. Hopefully this is uh, working a little bit better this time. Hopefully you can hear me. <laughs> yeah, I can hear you loud and clear. Okay, so we caught most of your answer there on, on Bo's play. Um, when yeah. you and I first spoke, when you were first joining us on, on Blue Jay Central and on Sportsnet earlier this summer, um, we had kind of talked about, you know, your impressions of Bo from afar a little bit, how you, you know, we knew his defensive reputation. You've been pretty locked in on this team series to series now for a couple of months. Um, what is your take on where Bo Bichette's defense is at right now? And maybe what your, where your opinion is now versus what maybe you anticipated coming into this season covering the Jays. Yeah, I definitely was keeping a closer eye on Bo's defense just because, of course, that was the position that I played. Uh, but I think that he's been doing a, a really good job. Um, and I, one thing that when I'm watching some games the last year, or even the times that he made some errors at the beginning of the season, a lot of it was because I didn't think he was being as aggressive going towards the ground ball. But I really think you've seen him have a completely different mindset when it comes to his approach to fielding the balls. And a lot of times it's easy to sit there and wait for that laptop to get to you, especially when you're so far away from where the batter is hitting the ball and whether it's second base or shortstop position. But I feel like you've seen him be more aggressive with that first step to come up and get the, get the ground balls on more of a short hop. Um, in that play last night, you have to have that aggressive instinctual mentality to go after that ball. And like we talked about um, just a few minutes ago before you guys lost me, but him being able to throw that ball off balance too, 
that's not a play that you sit there and practice and you try to work on. That's just something that happens with that quick reaction because you're thinking about where you're going to go with the ball before it's put in play. So those types of heads-up plays to me uh, are something that obviously we talk a lot about his offense because he is so good up in the batter's box, but I think he's been very solid defensively throughout this season as well. And that term uh, aggressive instinctual mentality applies well to, I think what he does at the plate a lot of the time and something that it sounded like he's trying to nudge some of his teammates to do a little bit more. He talked to Dan Schulman and Buck Martinez on the broadcast while he was on the IL about, you know, in big situations, guys needing to stick to a plan a, a little bit more, whether it's attacking a pitch or attacking a part of the zone. He talked when he came off the IL this weekend about the team being fearless. And then last night in the 10th inning, we see a couple of Blue Jays jump on the first pitch they see from Michael Bauman. Um, did you, what did you like about the Jays' decision to be hyper-aggressive as they got deeper into that Orioles bullpen last night? I loved it because you've got a new pitcher coming into the game and, and every single pitcher wants to come in and establish themselves early in the first batter that they see. So typically when pitchers come into the ball game, they want to throw a strike early in the count. And so I've always kind of taken the approach of having almost a pitcher's mentality when I would step into the box and try to think about, okay, what's the pitcher thinking in this situation? Obviously 10th inning, a runner on second base tie ball game, you want to try to get ahead. And I love the fact that Brandon Belt went up there, did not waste any time at all, was looking for a fastball. He got it on the first pitch, drove it out of the park, and all of a sudden within one pitch, the Blue Jays have a two-run lead. Uh, but I, I do feel like we we saw spurts of that aggressiveness really throughout the ball game. Uh, what is Four of Vladdy's five at-bats, he only saw one pitch, so he was going up there being aggressive early. And that aggressive mentality, again, is definitely something that – they're going to have to continue to use. And now I don't mean it by just saying you have to go up there and swing at the first pitch every single at bat, but being aggressive in your approach and your game plan, and maybe it's a specific speed that you want to go after, or maybe it's a specific zone uh, in the strike zone that you want to go after can definitely tell a difference when, when you have people that are going up there just hacking to be aggressive because their swings can be out of control and maybe they're making decisions way too early, just swinging to pitches that they shouldn't be. That's the type of aggressiveness that you want to stay away from. But I do think that you have to have kind of a, what we always used to call it a, a yes, yes, yes mentality. So when the pitcher goes into their windup, you're thinking you're swinging uh, no matter what. And then at the last minute when you decide, hey, that's not the location I'm looking for, that's not the speed I'm looking for, that's when you hold up. And when you start making a good takes on, on close pitches, maybe on the outside of the zone, all of a sudden you can feel the momentum within and that bat shift back towards the batter. And then the pitcher has to start throwing maybe the pitches that you were initially looking for. Um, when you went into that at bat. So it's all kind of that mental chess game because at the same time, the pitcher is also making some adjustments and and it, it just comes down to still being aggressive every single pitch of the ball game, but making sure that you're disciplined enough to be aggressive within your zone. And, and hitting is hard, right? Even on a good day, you're going to fail seven out of ten times. Um, but I think that the confidence that Bo exudes every single time that he steps into the batter's box you feel you just get the feeling that you know he's going to get it done when he steps up there because he's so confident in his abilities. And I think you're starting to see some other batters in this lineup start to exude that confidence. Now, Brandon Belt is somebody who is steady, maybe didn't get off to the best start at the beginning of the season, but you've heard him talk consistently about how he wants to have that consistent approach, the same approach every, every single time he steps into the batter's box. 
So he finds confidence in the consistency that he brings every single day. Dalton Varsho has that new toe tap that he's implemented in his swing. And I, it just feels like he's got so much more confidence in his swing. And again, the takes that, uh, that he's getting too on some of the fastballs on the inside part of the plate, he seems to be seeing the ball a lot better. George Springer, of course, has been on a tear as of late, too, and you can see his confidence and his swagger back in his swing. So you're starting to see kind of that, that bow-confident mentality start to trickle down through the rest of the offense. Madison, you mentioned Varsho's change from a, a more pronounced leg kick to a bit of a toe tap. I know you were a toe tap hitter uh, as well. How how often did you you know make mechanical tweaks like that if you were going through a cold spurt? And was it more about how you felt physically, just mixing things up? Dalton Varsho seems to have attributed his change more to you know what's going on mentally than anything physically in his swing. Even though we can obviously see the change from leg kick to toe tap. So I, as a hitter, I always loved having something mechanical to fix because to me, having a slight mechanical tweak was always easier than having to fix my, my approach or my pitch selection. I definitely was way more of an aggressive hitter. There was never a pitch that I did not like. I would swing at practically everything, especially the ones that were coming in right about uh, my forehead high. And um, so it took me a while to learn uh, the, the process and what was going to work for me to hone in on my pitch selection. So I always loved to have just this little minute uh, mechanical thing that I was tinkering with because one, it might be something that could help me in, in my, in the fluidity of my swing and maybe my rhythm and my timing, but also it got my mind off of thinking so much about the plate discipline, uh, about the specific pitch that I was looking at. And I was purely focused on that mechanical change. So it was almost a bit of a freeing mentality, too, to go up to the plate and just purely think about that mechanical tweak. And, and I do think that, of course, with, with Dalton with the toe tap, his head might not be moving quite as much uh, as it was with that more high leg kick. So you're obviously going to see the pitch a little bit better. But also, if you're going up there thinking about something else, there's that, that freeing part of it to where, uh, you can be a little bit more confident in your pitch selection because, quite, quite frankly, you're not thinking about it as much. And we often hear from some of the best hitters that they're going up there not thinking about anything. And, uh, and sometimes focusing on a mechanical tweak can be a little bit of a hack to get to that point where you're not necessarily thinking about much other than that mechanical fix. So something I, I'm, I wonder if you ever experienced as a – as a hitter as well. And he didn't, he chilled out last night, although he did have a really nice single-handed diving double play at first base, Ryan Mountcastle being beyond locked in over his career against the blue Jays. Did you have an opponent like that at all that you were just like, you know what, for whatever reason, I've got their number. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, there was uh, every time that we played LSU, Louisiana state university, it did not matter which pitcher they threw out there uh, in the circle. It didn't matter what their record was coming into the series that we played against them. It didn't matter what the pitchers threw me. Um, something about playing against that team, and I wish I could put my finger on it because if I could, then I would have done it against every single opponent that I faced. Um, but something about playing them, I just knew that there was no way they were going to beat me. There was no way those pitchers were going to strike me out. There was no way that they were going to hit a ball past me at shortstop. Um, just something about playing that team. I just knew right from my freshman year uh, that uh, it was going to be a good series for me, and it ended up uh, working out for me through the, the rest of my career. I don't know what it was about playing uh, that team in purple and gold, but for some reason 
um, I always ended up having some fairly uh, good weekends against them. <laughs> uh, that, that's great. And hopefully, you know, hopefully that cools off at some point, not for you, but for Ryan Mountcastle. Uh, Mountcastle <laughs> is going to see Kevin Gosman tonight. So with Kevin Gosman, we're coming off of uh, a rare iffy start for him. He hasn't been... He hasn't been quite himself since he came out, came back from that uh, oblique issue or side issue that that cost him a start, and the rotation got juggled around him. Now he hasn't been bad, but three starts ago we saw this Orioles team hone in on the splitter and try to hit the splitter rather than lay off the splitter, which we usually see teams do. And then last time out against the Phillies, the splitter just wasn't very good. If you're a team like the Orioles and you had some success chasing Gosman from the game early last time out by jumping on the splitter. Are you primed to kind of run that back because it was successful? Or do you kind of get into the chess head game thing where you anticipate a Gosman adjustment and maybe you're trying to adjust one step ahead? I would pretty much go, uh, I would go with the team approach of uh, having the batters go after whatever they're most comfortable with. So maybe it's going after Gosman's fastball. Maybe it is going after the splitter. I wouldn't be surprised if maybe we see some more of those sliders out of Gosman today. But I also think it's going to going to depend on the break that Gosman has on his splitter, and you'll be able to see that early in the game. In his last start against the Phillies, I almost felt like his splitter was moving a bit too much uh, horizontally and didn't have as much vertical break as we're used to seeing. And I feel like when the pitch has more vertical break, it obviously differentiates itself much more from that slider. And it's much more difficult to get a good piece of barrel on the pitch that's dropping down in the zone versus one that's just maybe moving side to side a bit more. Um, his velocities were up a little bit too for in the last game. So maybe kind of bringing those back down to try to get more of the break on those pitches. Uh, but it would be an approach that I would have going up there, either looking for those breaking pitches or sitting on the fastball. Um, but I would also be paying attention to what sort of splitter that Kevin Gosman has uh, in his start today, because that could also uh, make a, a different plan for me too. I feel like throughout this season, we've seen teams approach Gosman with when he's got that intense vertical break on his pitches, sometimes they'll go up there and completely lay off of that pitch altogether and just look at the fastball. Um, but the Orioles are a pretty good breaking ball hitting team, which would lead them to maybe more lean on the side of going after both the slider and the splitter from Gosman today. But I'm definitely looking, uh, I'm going to be watching that splitter closely to see if he can get more of that vertical drop on that pitch, because it's uh, a completely different look when it starts to go down in the zone versus just moving side to side. And when he's able to locate that fastball, obviously, you're putting the pressure on the hitter to have to decide which speed that they want to go after. That's uh, it's an interesting one to to keep an eye on. And as someone pointed out in the text line, Kevin Gosman has you know not not been bad, but but cooled off a little bit in the second halves of seasons over the last couple of years. So something to watch for there. And obviously a benefit of the Jays having gone six man rotation for a bit there and all of the extra off days we've had in here. Uh, no off days for Madison Shipman. She's back on Blue Jays Central tonight. Uh, thanks for taking the time out this morning. Uh, have a, a great broadcast tonight. Awesome. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Madison Shipman of Sportsnet, Blue Jays Central, ESPN. Uh, quite a shortstop herself. There are YouTube compilations of her defense at Tennessee. So that tells you uh, how sharp she was in the field. couple more questions from the text line. There was um, 
I think it was, yes, Paul in Winnipeg who asked about Kevin Gosman drifting off in the second half uh, of seasons. The last couple of years, I, I think it's something to keep an eye on. I don't think it's to the level of concern because, again, he's been very good overall with some real year-to-year consistency here. Um, with any pitcher, though, you want to, especially someone that you've asked to get 115 pitches for you sometimes, the guy who you know has generally eaten the most innings for you, yeah, I it's, it's worth keeping uh, an eye on that. And if he needs an extra day of rest here and there, uh, being mindful of that because we know the numbers when Kevin Gosman does get an extra day of rest and, and they're pretty, uh, you know, not last time out, but generally they're, they're pretty encouraging. Um, and yeah, to, to this person's point, I mean, he had a 419 ERA in September last year, not a, not terrible, but not quite the, uh, the Gosman level we'd come to expect. And then if you go back to 2021, he also, again, a season where he was uh, cruising along. Uh, he had a 405 ERA in September. So again, this isn't that Kevin Gosman becomes bad. It is that Kevin Gosman maybe cools off just a little in September. So buy him the extra extra little breaks where you can. Uh, a couple other questions in the text line here. Um, one, blaming the media for Vlad by putting too big expectations on him. Look, buddy. I didn't come second in MVP voting in 2021 for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. I didn't hit 48 home runs and have a 1.002 OPS. He did those things, and the expectations come from that. Uh, I, I appreciate you thinking I have the power to do something like that, but no, Vlad have, Vlad being arguably the best hitter in baseball for an entire season is what has set the expectations very high for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Nobody in the media has anything to do with that. That's how this whole thing works. Uh, Matt in Toronto uh, wants people to slow down a little bit on the Davis Schneider stuff. Uh, you don't want to, you can slow it down and let him get some big, big league experience. No rush. Um, Matt. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a reasonable take. I, I tend to lean toward, I'd like guys getting the everyday development time, um, but there's a value too. in seeing what this playoff race is like and seeing how guys like Springer and belt and, and you know, Boba prepare for games and things like that. Um, there's no right answer with this stuff. We've seen guys come up and not play a ton on the bench and have great careers. We've seen guys come up, play every day, have bad careers and vice versa. Um, Jag and Scarborough uh, agrees that Kikuchi came out uh, a little early last night and it completely, it almost completely backfired. I don't know if I go that far. Uh, Garcia obviously allows one inherited runner to score and then beans a guy. It was iffy. I just, again, if this is a playoff scenario, maybe it's a little different. Um, I just, yeah, I, I think you say Kikuchi's earned the the chance to, uh, you know, to run with that a little bit. A couple questions about Bo uh, and the shortstop position. Jeff and Sarnia says he loves how Bo has turned around his defensive abilities. Very well-rounded player. Uh, and the Jays have nipped the wandering from the bases and getting caught in the bud uh, a little bit, the last little bit. Yeah, that, that, that part's true. Um, you know, it wasn't the cleanest of defensive weekends for the blue Jays when it comes to those attention to detail things, but they're at least not getting hung up halfway off the bases uh, lately. Uh, Reed from Timmons then says, we know defensively Bo's not the best shortstop, but as a complete player, uh, him playing shortstop is the best choice. Moving him to second or somewhere else would negatively affect uh, the team's offense. Yeah. I mean, and I think what Reed's saying here to, to paraphrase for him is if you have a guy who's capable at shortstop and uh, you know, I, I would say he's at least average defensively at shortstop at this point. If you have a guy who can stay there defensively, um, that lets you put 
more bat first guys at lesser defensive positions. Whereas say you moved Bo to second, then you need to find someone who can not only play short defensively, but also hit for that position. And it threatens to make your team worse offensively overall, um, because that's a very hard position to hit at. And, and you know, that's why Bo Bichette is so valuable. Howard and Thornhill asked what the plan is for Chad green. Um, and who goes down. I don't think we have to quite worry about that yet. So Chad Green had a, uh, I think it was his ninth rehab appearance last night. It was the first time he'd actually gotten touched up. It didn't look particularly bad, but he hung a slider to Brett Beatty uh, and it got taken for a home run. So those are the first, that that was a two run shot. Those are the first earned runs Chad Green has allowed on his rehab assignment. The velocity was still around 94 and a half. So it looks like that's probably where he's going to top out for now. Uh, The Jays could slow play this a little bit. Roster expansion, September 1st, where you wouldn't even have to send anyone down. But I think Bowden Francis is probably the the next man out of the pen. Obviously, he brings some value as the bulk guy, the guy who can give the multiple innings. Um, but right now, he has options, and, and he's the lowest leverage guy. So if they were to activate Chad Green before September 1st, I think that would be the move. But his rehab clock restarted when he went on the concussion IL uh, a couple weeks ago, so there's no uh, real rush there. Uh, there are also a couple people, including Darcy and Harcourt, uh, admitting a mea culpa Uh, about you know Bo's defense and and hey it's great that people can admit that they came around there um but also he improved a lot it's the same thing with the the Trevor Richards in the bullpen thing is yep maybe your opinion of that guy was one thing last year but that guy dramatically improved so that is uh you know it doesn't mean you were wrong to feel that way last year just means that guy's improved and we uh we have to change our evaluation, our expectations along with it. Uh, Some more good text in the text line we'll save for later in the week. We're going to take a break right now. When we come back, Ben Clemens of Fangraphs joins us on Jay's Talk Plus on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, the Toronto Blue Jays have had an interesting season when it comes to hitting with runners in scoring position or performing in the clutch or high leverage, what have you. Uh, tweeted some stats. Chris Black tweeted a, a good comparison out earlier between uh, yesterday, rather, between the Blue Jays and the Orioles and all of these stats where the Jays are better or equal. And then, hey, there's a big runners in scoring position execution gap. And that explains some of the difference. You could do the same thing with the Jays versus the Mariners over the last 30 days. Um, All the data that we have, all of the analysis people have done over the years suggests this is not a trait that is sticky. And what that means is you're not inherently good or bad in those situations. Almost everyone will eventually normalize to, hey, if you're a good hitter, you'll hit well in the split situations, however you want to chop it up. There are some exceptions, but for the most part, that's where we're at. However, Backward looking, the Jays have missed some opportunities because of that, even if you believe that they will be better moving forward. This is something that not just with the Blue Jays, but in baseball in general, has fascinated Ben Clemens of Fangraphs. He's been doing a lot of writing about hitting with runners in scoring position, uh, two out, runner on third execution, things like that. Ben Clemens joins us now. Ben, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I am pretty good, man. Uh, So you've done a couple of pieces lately looking at, you know, the... 
small, the micro split execution or, or the leverage execution, however we want to phrase this. Um, I, I know that a, a handful of the pieces have resulted in, well, man, there, there's not a lot there that we can take away from it. Uh, are you, are you flustered at this point at our inability to, you know, understand the ups and downs of kind of leverage execution? Yeah, absolutely. Because look, I'm a baseball fan first, because otherwise, why well, you don't get into baseball writing. <laughs> and it's just the most maddening thing. It's just always the most maddening thing when your team seemingly because they're, they're not worthy for whatever reason, can't get that runner home from third base with less than two outs. And you know, it's always a strikeout. And it's always the guy you don't want. And this puzzle has just bothered me for a long time. And I don't know, recently, I just decided I'm going to look into it because I, I just, I need to know, like the Cardinals are just awful at it this year, worse than the Jays. And I just wanted to know why, like, why, why is this happening? Is there any like pattern to it? And I'm going to be honest with you there. I just can't find any, I'm, you know, I'm taking a break from diving into a bunch of different models that I'm trying to learn on the fly using a chat GPT. <laughs> um, to try to figure out any patterns in this. I, I just pulled data for like 10 years of teams. Like, hey, what are your overall stats? And then how did you do at driving that runner home from third? And I just can't find anything. It, it's wild. Like normally I'm able to find some fake correlation or something, but I just can't find anything that matters. It's crazy. It's uh yeah, it's fascinating to read. It's frustrating. And, and you know, I, I looked yesterday at, um, you know, for you guys at Fangraphs, you have this clutch metric. How well does a person yeah. perform in high leverage versus how well they perform in all other situations? Uh, I pulled baseball ref from baseball reference, you know, OPS with runners in scoring position versus OPS without runners in scoring position at the team level. And there is... When I say almost exactly zero correlation year to year in these stats, I mean point zero zero eight. Yeah. Like there is, there is no explanation for it. Like if you are an 800 OPS hitter or an 800 OPS team, you will eventually just do that. And the ups and downs within there uh, are just kind of random, which is, is difficult. Um, you did, as you dug in a little bit with specifically with two outs and a runner on third, and this is an area where the Jays are a little below average, but, but not as bad as runners in scoring position overall. Um, you did see that at least a little bit, you know, batting average is more telling than maybe slugging percentages. And then when we split into half season predictive samples, you know, having a lower K rate is slightly better. Um, but that's about it, right? Those, those are the small things we can pull from that. And that's about the, yeah. the extent of it. Pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, like if for a given level of offense, you'd prefer to have fewer strikeouts. Like obviously you're just always going to take the better offensive team. Um, that's just like, of course the, the team that gets on base a lot more has a lot more hits, but really, if you're looking at your teams, like relative, relative to their overall scoring talent, strikeout rate is like a, a small positive variable. Like the lower, the less you strike out, the more likely you probably should be to drive those runners in, but it's clearly not the only variable to the Jays strike out less frequently than the Orioles. And I'll tell you who's really good at getting a runner in. That's the Orioles. They're, they're the best in baseball at it this year, more or less. Um, or rather, like they've done it in a bunch of big spots and they've done it a lot. So 
that's a, a small factor. And in the long run, if we were going to like play this season out a hundred times, that would help, but it's really small. It's just not that important. So I, it, it's one of those things where randomness matters. So when I, and, and yeah, you, you, come to the conclusion that nothing seems to matter at the end of one of these pieces, uh, or as I uh, tend to say, you'll regress to who you are uh, unless you don't, unless yeah. you don't. And then we, <laughs> we don't know what to make of that. Um, but okay. So when it comes to we're 125 games in here, obviously we, we analyze this stuff because we want to understand it better. We want to understand the, the true quality of a team and things like that. Um, and, but there is not a ton of predictive value in it for these last 40 games or so. When you look at a team like the Orioles, because, and I'll use them because by Fangraph's clutch metric, which measures, again, the Orioles' performance in big spots versus their performance overall. So if you're, this doesn't, you know, it accounts for that you're already a good player or you're already a bad player. The Orioles are one of the absolute most, for lack of a better term, clutch teams that we've seen in the last 25 years. They are also that on the pitching side. Now, you could convince me that this stuff is more real on the pitching side because you have a good bullpen and things like that. I I would buy it more on the pitching side. When you see the Orioles at the top of both, though, and this stat could be explained as clutch, or if you were more of a nihilist, you could explain it as Mm -hmm. luck. Um, What? How do you... What do you make of the Orioles standing out in that regard or any team that's just a, a big outlier in that? Because, you know, we'd expect it to normalize if we replayed the whole season, but we're almost out of time here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like to think of it uh, a few ways, but first I want to say your point about pitching is very well taken. And I agree. I'm much more willing to believe these pitching quote unquote clutch numbers because a lot of that just has to do with getting your best pitchers in in the biggest spots. But obviously, you don't get to pick that in hitting. So, yeah, having a great closer and utilizing them well should make you very, quote-unquote, clutch. But hitting, it, it's really just baffling. So how do I interpret it? It's not just luck. And I think it's kind of unfair to reduce baseball to like, oh, these players are all just numbers on a spreadsheet, and then... You know, here's what should have happened. And then luck is what actually luck is the difference between what should have happened and what actually happened. The truth is, like, when it comes down to it, the Orioles have just been better when they've needed to be this year. And at the end of the year, that's a lot of what a baseball season is measuring. Now, it's a different question to say who's going to be better at getting it done when it counts in the future. And I think that a lot of smart people over the years in baseball. Uh, which I would not really count myself as one of, because this is, I'm not really researching clutch here, have just, have proven that, yeah, look, your ability to come through when it counts, it, it matters. But what, like how well you've been at it in the last week doesn't have a lot to say about how, how well you'll do tomorrow. And so that's kind of how I interpret it. Look, the season on the field is the season that I care about. I don't really care about, you know, the season in a spreadsheet. That's not interesting. <laughs> On paper, this team would win the World Series. Yeah, well, we don't play the World Series on paper. I I think what you can say is, man, the Orioles have really been executing this year. And that's impressive. They've just out-executed the teams they're playing against. And really, ask a baseball player, but everyone's trying hard, and they've just been (laughs) better in those moments. They've not only have the bounces gone their way, but, you know, they've the guys who have come up have been the right guys. The guys who have come up have done what they needed to do. And that's never a given like that. 
at the end of the year, when you look back at your team, those are a lot of things that you like about them. And this year's Orioles team has been really likable for reasons like that. Now, will they, like, if they play the Jays in a playoff series, let's say uh, the ALDS after a, after a potential wildcard series, am I going to say, ah, oh, the Jays, the Jays are just not clutch? No. I mean, they'll be facing tough pitching, like we were talking about. The Orioles are good about having just really hard to hit guys in in big situations. But no, I, I think all you can say about this is that in this season to date, the Orioles have had it. Like, they've had that it, whatever it is. And it's, it's been worth a lot of wins for them. And will they keep doing it? I don't know. I, I don't think, I think anyone who tells you they know is, uh, I, I wouldn't take them that seriously because it's <laughs> unknowable. But it, yeah, they've had it. Yeah, and, and that it or clutch or whatever you want to call it is the most important descriptive thing we have for the season. And it is yeah. maybe the least important predictive thing that we have for the season, which is, uh, you know, it's, uh, I mean, look, we're headed toward playoff time. We're all we're going to talk about is executing in those spots. So it's not, it's not irrelevant. It just confuses a little bit or, or muddies a little bit um, team quality overall right now and exactly who's better than who. And Hey, it might not matter for the blue Jays if they can't start executing a little bit more like they did yesterday, because then you're on the outside of the playoffs looking in, you got to get there for that execution to really matter at the next level. Um, Ben, something you uh, something else you wrote about recently. You chopped up a couple different stats to figure out, hey, who's the most average hitter in baseball? And you did this a couple yeah. different ways. I bring it up because a couple of Blue Jays popped up on there. And when you were looking at from a plate discipline perspective, okay, let's look at chase rate and contact rate and things like that. Who is the most average player in terms of plate discipline? And this will be a little bit surprising because he's had some real lulls with on-base percentages here. But Dalton Barsho comes out as the most average player in terms of plate discipline. Um, was that surprising to you at all? And when it comes to the plate discipline stuff, we've seen Dalton Barsho over the last three or four weeks uh, really improve, cut his chase rate, walk a little bit more, strike out less. Is there a, an amount of time or plate appearances at which you start to believe, you know, hey, there's a there's a change here in the underlying you know, discipline profile. Yeah. So I was, I was surprised to have Varsho on there, but maybe I shouldn't have been. Uh, so after I, after he popped up, I looked at his past years of performance and I guess the main thing that I take away is that he's swinging a little bit less this year. He's like improved his plate discipline this year. And previously he was a little below average. He swung a little too often at bad pitches for how often he swung at good pitches. But, yeah, I, I was kind of surprised because, like you said, you look at his numbers and you're like, I don't know, man. Like, he's uh, he's kind of striking out too much for how much he walks. But, yeah, he's he's benefited from some, from some regression towards uh, average recently. And it kind of does make sense now that, like, once you stop and look at his season, he doesn't do anything particularly well, at, like, in, in terms of... Uh, like play discipline, he doesn't take a tremendous amount of pitches, but he's not awful. I'm never up there watching him like, oh man, he just cannot figure this out. And I guess the big thing that's been bugging him this year is not so much that he can't figure out how to put the ball in play. It's what happens once he puts the ball in play. You know, his his power numbers are pretty down. He used to be kind of a doubles and homers machine. He had a 
he had, let's see, like 27 homers last year and 23 doubles, and he's nowhere near replicating that this year, despite uh, despite moving to a park that I, I feel like suits him a little better. I, I think that's kind of where he's been let down. I didn't really get the sense that he was being let down by his inability to tell balls from strikes, and I guess this is just kind of a kind of confirmation of that. But I'm with you. Like, I, he's not a name that I saw and thought, oh, yes, of course, this is... This is the guy who is the most average decision maker at the plate. But on the other hand, there he is forgettable decision making. So maybe that's what what this is. Yeah, and we'll we'll see. Again, the chase rates down, the walk rates up, strikeout rates down uh, a little bit over these last couple weeks. Maybe that's just normalizing. Maybe there's a you know these things are streaky too, like balls in play are, like hard hit. Um, Another name that came up in in your evaluation, the most average hitters is that when it comes yeah. to quality of contact, you know, what happens when you do put the ball in play, when you do put bat to ball, uh, George Springer is now about the most average quality of contact guy in baseball. And this is a guy who it, we're not very far. We're not very far removed from him being an elite batted ball guy. Um, what did you make of that? And George Springer, again, a guy who's, come around a little bit the last couple of weeks. So maybe we're starting to see some positive regression there, or or maybe that hot streak just kind of nudged him to the top of your leaderboard, but it has last couple of weeks aside, it's felt like a a quicker taper off in George Springer's offensive profile than maybe we expected. Yeah. um, I think what this says to me is I just thought of George Springer as "Eh, he's having a down year, but Everyone has down years sometimes, and uh, we'll see what happens. Like, you know, you look at his expected statistics. They're a little bit better than his actual statistics. Like, I kept just reserving judgment and not thinking about it too much. But seeing him at an average contact quality list, that's uh, that's really concerning to me. Because that's not the player that George Springer is. That's not what makes him great. What made him great was that, yeah, he had, like, fairly good walk and strikeout numbers. He didn't strike out a lot, which is pretty impressive given the way his career started. But then he just hit the crap out of the ball. And that's why he was, you know, that's why he got a six-year, $150 million contract. And that's why he was awesome for the Jays the first two years when he could be on the field. And yeah, I don't know if it's, I don't have a lot of concept of whether this is predictive, like whether being average in contact quality in one year means anything for the next year. But it really did put his season into perspective for me, which is this is a guy who in my head, he's like a, like a bat speed guy. I think of George Springer and I think uh, he just like, he can just really hit the ball hard. He barrels the ball up a lot, has a lot of hard hit balls. And that's really, it's fallen off more than I thought this year. And actually, in looking at the numbers, it fell off more than I thought last year, too. And he just made up for it by, like, being really good. Uh, he walked more than he's walking this year. He struck out less than he's striking out this year. And, yeah, he hit for more power. But his power was still way down from 21 and the end of his tenure at Houston. So I think what this says to me is maybe we should be thinking of Springer more as a guy who makes good decisions at the plate but is no longer just mashing the ball like he used to. Yeah, which is, you know, tough given that there are a couple years left on this contract and, and he's moved to right field, but you understood it would happen at some point, just maybe uh, maybe not yet. Uh, ben, Kevin Gosman will be on the hill for the Blue Jays tonight against the Orioles. Uh, he 
by Fangraph's version of wins above replacement, which is based more on uh, FIP fielding independent pitching, is tippy top of the American League. Uh, if we were to sort our Cy Young ballots by wins above replacement, if we go to you know a baseball prospectus or a baseball reference where there are different input components, he doesn't grade out quite as well because his season hasn't quite matched up to you know what the fielding independent pitching version might think. If you had a Cy Young vote and you were looking at these things. Um, how do you, how do you weigh those factors in that Gosman obviously by any metric has been very good, but by some metrics has either been, you know, unlucky or should have been even better. And, and the element that is kind of the second year in a row, that's been the case is there maybe something there. How would you weigh those factors if you had an AL Cy Young vote? Yeah, I think there there's definitely something there because, like you said, it, it's been two years in a row. But for his career, he's kind of underperformed his fielding independent numbers. And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that he's really good at missing bats. Like, that's always been his skill, right? That splitter is just outrageous. And so I think that it's so good relative to kind of the rest of who he is as a pitcher. It's just like, I think it's the best splitter in baseball. And his standout skill is so well mirrored in what FIP does, which is basically just look at strikeouts, walks, and home runs. Um, He's kind of historically given up pretty hard hit uh, baseballs, like in general. And Zips, uh, run by uh, Dan Zaborski, thinks that he should give up a higher than average batting average, uh, like when the other team can put the ball in play going forward. And I totally buy that. Like I, you watch Kevin Gossman pitch and you're like, okay, like, look, he's like, if they put the ball in play fine, like they'll get a little bit of theirs, but he's going to miss a ton of bats. The thing is I still would have him in the top like two or three in my ballot because look, missing those bats matters. And it's not like he has a bad ERA. He has a 324 ERA. It, it's impressive. He's done it over 144 innings. So he's, he's like pretty close to hitting his innings total from last year, which was fairly solid. Uh, the thing that really holds him back, I think in the AL Cy Young race is that innings total. Like if you, if you look at some of the other guys who will be competing for this, like Garrett Cole has thrown 160 innings from Rivaldez, 154. I guess you can throw Luis Castillo in there if you want to. He's at 157. That's just like, it's a lot more innings than Gaussman's uh, Gaussman's 144. And I think it's going to come down to that because like you said, chop up the metrics different ways. You can find different guys to put on top. There's no obvious standout this year. And so I, I kind of default to durability at that point. And look, he might get there. I am not saying he's not going to like have some long strings of like big long starts, but he's two starts down on Cole right now. I guess he'll pick up one, uh, pick up one shortly but he's two starts down in 16 innings and yeah I don't, I don't think he's going eight innings to start and i don't think he'll make those starts up so i kind of default to durability when you when you don't have an obvious answer and like do you have an obvious answer it's really tricky no, it, it is tricky. And Garrett Cole's also got the element of, well, yeah, the Yankees are bad, so it, it stands out, but does it really matter? Um, right. You know, Castillo's yeah. a, a really interesting one uh, as well that, you know, we could we could get into uh, deeper. But yeah, it, you look, Kevin Gosman has an answer to that. He just throws nine innings tonight and then everything looks <laughs> a little a little more normal, right? I mean, hard to argue with that. Like, yeah. 
I do think it's close enough that if somebody has a standout September, they're going to win. Like there's just no obvious pick. Yeah, especially, I mean, Gosman and Castillo both in a playoff race here, which even though maybe that shouldn't affect the award, it's probably going to because everyone's going to be watching those starts. Uh, everyone is also going to be checking out your work at Fangraphs down the stretch here. Ben Clements, thank you so much for taking the time out this morning, man. Yeah, yeah. thanks for having me. Ben Clements of Fangraphs. Make sure you head over there uh, and check out all of his great work, all of their great work. If you clicked over to the playoff odds right now, by the way, you would see that the Blue Jays have a 69.2% chance of making the playoffs as things stand right now, which is maybe uh, a little bit surprising to you given that they are out of a playoff spot right now, but this is how close things are between Toronto, Houston, Seattle, and yes, Texas, who are now at risk of falling into that race as well because they've squandered most of their American League West lead. Uh, Tampa Bay, a little more insulated, four games up on Houston and the rest of that jumble there. Uh, they are also playing Colorado right now, which is uh, helpful for their uh, playoff <laughs> chances. Um, so that game goes tonight at uh, at 7 o'clock. Uh, if you missed it earlier, Jack Flaherty's been scratched from his start. Uh, Kevin Gosman's going to start against Dean Kramer. Pretty big contrast in Arsenal's there. Kevin Gosman, of course, going to go fastball splitter, a little bit of the slider. He debuted a sweeper a couple weeks ago. We haven't seen it uh, a ton yet, but it'll be very interesting to see this Orioles team. A couple starts ago, last time Gosman saw them, had one of the highest swing rates against Gosman splitter that we've seen, period, during Gosman's time as a Blue Jay. They were able to chase him in the fifth inning because they got that pitch count up nice and high. Um, that is something to keep an eye on, especially because Gosman splitter did not have its typical stuff last time out against the Phillies. Dean Kramer, meanwhile, the Blue Jays, this will be his seventh time seeing the Blue Jays over the last two seasons. He throws six different pitches, a lot of them with a heavy in-zone profile. So, uh, yeah, the Jays don't have the excuse if they haven't seen this kind of mix-and-match junk baller guy before. Should be an interesting one. Jays win last night. They'll now look to lock up a series win and keep the possibility of a sweep alive we'll be back at 10 a.m tomorrow to break it down jeff blair solo five to seven to continue to tee you up for this one and then jeff blair will have jay's talk for you post game uh, thanks to chris black to ben clemens to madison shipman to nick andrew and jennifer behind the glass and everyone in the text line see you tomorrow